All right, y'all. Welcome, welcome. Go ahead and go ahead and turn to uh, Mark chapter eight, or you can you can pick up uh, your worship guide, and you will you will have that at your disposal. Um, I'm gonna we're just gonna read it in its entirety, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna do some hard work here. Uh, in if you're just following along in your bulletin, you you only have first uh, thirty one and following. I'm actually gonna move all the way up to verse twenty seven just to help us with some context. Um, now, you guys on my left, your right, y'all did lose, right? But you guys won in the proportion, right? So this part of the, or killing the middle and the side, as far as like population. So y'all lost in one game, but you won the other. So good, good job. I, I felt bad for calling you out for being quiet. Yeah, that's right, everyone gets a trophy. That's right. We're all winners. We're all winners. All right, Mark chapter 8, uh, 27 and following. This is uh, the gospel of Mark. It says this. And Jesus went uh, on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And then he pauses and he asks them, but who do you say that I am? It becomes very, very personal. I know what they say. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? Now Peter immediately answers. He said, Peter answers him, you are the Christ. And Jesus says something interesting. He says, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Peter gets the right answer, but Jesus says, halt just a little bit. And this is verse 31. This is what's printed in your guide. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days to rise again. And he said this plainly. That's interesting. And he said this plainly. And Peter, again, the one who got the right answer, the one who was able to say, you are the Christ. And Jesus is the one who said, silence that. Now Peter and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, rebuke Jesus himself. But turning and seeing the disciples, this is Jesus, Jesus rebukes Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and ashamed of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. This is the middle of this gospel, Mark. And if you remember, the, in the fall semester, we spent all semester walking through Mark chapters 1 through 8. For the next couple of months, we're going to pick up here in the very middle of, of the gospel of Mark. And we're going to travel through the rest of the gospel until we get to Easter. 
Now, you need to know a couple of things, and it's on your bulletin, it's on your worship guide, so you need to go ahead and, and take a glance there. The title is uh, The Descent into Greatness, and that's the title of this sermon series. Because the, the definite article matter, matters. There is a great descent. There is the descent. And of course, this means Jesus. Jesus is the descender. He is the one that does the great descent for us. And so we are going to journey through seeing Jesus descend into greatness. Now, we think greatness comes by asserting ourselves. We think um, greatness comes by having so many followers or YouTube glances or those types of things. We think that is what greatness is all about. For you to have a brand or for you to have a clothing line or for you to have a label or those types of things. That's what greatness is. But for eight straight chapters, Jesus is going to show us that he is going to take one step after another downward. He's going to descend into greatness. And so that's why the graphic is what it is, right? You can tell that it's the crown of thorns, right? This is Jesus's. This is what he is going to wear on Calvary. Because we're going all the way to Easter, we're going to Easter Sunday, we wanted some representation that we are heading toward and we we're going to show up at the cross of Jesus. And yet we strategically only gave you the bottom half of the crown because this is what Jesus does, right? Jesus descends into greatness. He always has a low point. There's a dip there before he ascends into victory and he claims these types of things. And so what Jesus does is he descends into greatness. But over and over and over, he shifts his attentions to his disciples and he shifts his attention to you and me and he welcomes us on the journey. And he says, why don't you come and follow me? Why don't you do as I do? And that's the struggle. We are able to look at him and see how he descends. And we're able to honor him there. But when he welcomes us on the journey, that's when we start to tremble a little bit. And that's where we shake a little bit because we're simply not willing to take that kind of journey. And so it's an inverted arc where we actually are welcomed on this type of journey where we die to self. Where the last becomes first, where the greatest among you is a servant, where you truly must lose your life and deny yourself. You are asked to descend. There's a famous movie, right? It's called Shawshank Redemption. And I know that some of you have watched it, some of you haven't, right? But there's all kinds of just these unbelievable moment, moments in this, in this movie. Well, the, the main character, his name is Andy, Andy Dufries, right? And Andy just, I mean, he's got the curse of being the smartest guy in the room every single time. And this smartness is what actually gets him in trouble and gets him thrown in jail. Well, he shows up here at Shawshank and he's able to walk into, um, uh, the, the, and, uh, into the jail. And everyone at the prison, the warden, the guards, the prisoners, they all know Andy's got like three or four or ten steps on everybody. He's just that brilliant. And so these types of things doesn't just get him thrown in jail, but it gets him into some trouble while he's there in prison. 
there's this famous scene where Andy is being uh, is is called into the warden's office, and he's there, and there's a there's a there's a guard there, and they're just kind of just waiting around. Well, the guard um, he uh, excuses himself, and he goes into the restroom, and there Andy finds himself in the warden's office, and it's planed with glass, so he's able to look over into the prison yard, and he's he just gets a moment or a glimpse of freedom. He's used to these bars and he's used to darkness. But now he's got light and freedom and windows and it's amazing. And as the guard goes into the restroom, the devious Andy, he walks over and he locks the bathroom door. And so he's truly free and he's unencumbered to anything. Well, he likes his freedom so much that he walks to the front of the warden's, uh, the office door and he locks it as well. And so there he is in an office all by himself, truly free for maybe the first time in a long time, for months and months and months. So he's pilfering around this, this office, and he comes across this record player and some records. So he looks through a couple of records, and he pulls out Mozart, right? And it's the marriage of Figaro or something like this. So he pulls out this unbelievable record. He puts it on the record player, and he begins to play it. And there's this music. This blissful, beautiful music that comes and just fills the room. Andy is truly free. Well, Andy's not done. He then notices that there's a PA system there to his left. So he walks over to the old-timey microphone, and he presses the button, and he, and he puts the microphone next to the record player. And not just himself and the office, but then Mozart begins to blare over every speaker at Shawshank. And so in cells and along the halls and in the corridors or in corners and in dark places. And prisoners start to grab their, their, the bars of the cell and lean like this. And all of this show this, they pan this amazing picture. Where the entire, the, the, the grounds, the, the prison grounds, they stop. And they stare at these speakers because something so beautiful is coming out of these speakers. The warden is enraged, runs to his office, only to find that his office door is locked. And he's, it's a plain glass, and he starts banging on the glass. Let me in, Dufries! Let me in! And Dufries is sitting at the warden's desk with his feet propped up on the desk of the warden. And he just smiles. He leans over to the PA, and he just turns the volume So this is the story of how Andy DeFries truly wanted to claim victory. Well, the story is that the guards end up breaking the glass, beating him to a pulp, and throwing him into the pit for two days. What Andy knew is that it was going to cost him. He knew he couldn't get away with a prank, but it was worth it. It was somehow in his mind and in his soul it was worth the beating, and it's worth two days in the pit to enjoy just a moment of goodness or a moment of greatness or a moment of beauty or a moment of grace or a moment of freedom or maybe a moment of rebellion. What Andy knew is what you and I know, is that every time we try to gain something, every time we're able to get a hold of something, it's likely going to cost us. And so there's always an exchange between what we gain and what we lose. 
And we never, ever, ever, ever can gain something without losing something first, right? And some pretty practical examples. So that's a movie, and we will never be in a warden's office, right? So that will never be us. And, but you and I know this exchange because you and I, we are here in the middle of February, and we have gained some winter weight, right? So we too are like bears, and we hibernate, and we just need to put on just a little bit of girth, right, to make, through, make it through the winter, right? So we've eaten maybe a little bit too much, Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and my birthday and an anniversary and Valentine's Day and a weekend. Like you're just like, hey, the days are shorter and I just want to eat. And so you kind of pack on just a little bit of winter weight, right? And so now you're starting to look at the mirror and go, I'm about to be at the pool or I'm about to go on vacation or I hate the lights and you just turn them off. So like you're just looking and you're like, you're done, all right? And so what do you do? You have to make an exchange for you to lose weight. Right? For you to feel better, look better, be better, you're actually going to have to lose something. You're going to have to lose calories. Right? You're going to have to lose the comfort of the lazy boy and trade it for the trade mill. Right? You're going to have to lose the Chick-fil-A you know, drive-thru. Like, you're just going to have to lose some things in order to gain it. Right? And we all understand in order for us to feel better, be better, right, look a little better, we're going to have to lose these kind of just the mountain of things. In the same way, girls and fashion, I don't understand, right? But so many times my wife has said, these shoes are killing my feet, right? And I'm like, why are you wearing them? Like, it makes sense to me. I mean, just, uh, like, put on some jogging pants and you'll be fine. And she's like, but I want to look good. Or it just pulls the outfit together, those kinds of things. So there have been countless weddings, formals, galas, whatever. And she's like, I'm dying in these shoes. I'm like, well, take them off, right? But she won't because it just makes her look better, feel better, or whatever that is inside the exchange. And so what has she done? In order to feel a little better, look a little better, she's lost comfort. She thinks the pain is worth it. And so we, before we gain something, anything in life, practical or spiritual, we have to go through this arc, this descending arc of loss before we gain. We've heard it said over loudspeakers many, many times, we don't win anymore. As if winning is the only thing. Well, this entire semester, as we journey through this descent of Jesus, we are going to actually be talking about losing. And actually losing on purpose. And losing well. And choosing to lose. Because that's what Jesus tells us very plainly in our scriptures. Is that for you to follow Jesus, you must lose your life that sink in for a moment for you to follow Jesus what he asks of you first is for you to lose your life to gain a relationship with Jesus meaning you have to suppress your life almost reject your life and that in that dip or in that descent is actually where you are going to flourish. Those are really strong words from our Savior. 
So first and foremost, let's think about how Jesus actually does this. Let's look at what he does for us. He says, and he began to teach them. All right, this is Jesus. He, he models this for us. And he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, that he must suffer many things, and then he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. This is the descent. This is Jesus' understanding how he is modeling this for us. In verse 27, the reason I, I read it is because we know that we are in Caesarea Philippi. That's important because Caesarea Philippi is literally at the tippy top of the map of Israel. And so what Jesus is here in the middle of Mark, right, as he has literally climbed all the way to the top of Israel, he's saying, I'm here up top and I'm literally about to descend all the way into Jerusalem. And I'm physically able to make a hike all the way down into Jerusalem. And as I hike, things start to click in our disciples' life. That, oh, this is the movement. This is the arc of life as we actually have to go down before we go up. And so it's significant that he's up there at Caesarea Philippi so that he can literally walk south or down. The other thing that's really significant is that Caesarea Philippi, it is known for wealth and celebrity and power. And what Jesus is saying as he's looking at the city, he says, you see all this? You see all the wealth, you see all the power, you see all the prestige, you see all the celebrity. This is not what the definition of life is. It's some place else. And so if you want to find your life, do not look to a place like Caesarea Philippi that's shiny and glamorous and good. If you want power, if you want wealth, if you want significance, if you want purpose and all those types of things, that's found in another place. It's actually found in a pretty rugged, nasty, gruesome place called the cross. So in those two places, Jesus is just strategically placing himself there so that he can show forth that I'm going down and this place, as glamorous as it is, this is not where you need to fix your eyes. And what Jesus then says is that he must suffer, that he must be rejected by the, the scribes, the elders, the, the, the chief teachers, those types of things, and that he actually has to be killed. So his entire life, as he descended into, uh, out of heaven and into earth, has been one moment of suffering after another, one moment of descent after another, thus the Christmas story and the manger, the dirty old manger, this is where we find Jesus. It's just one act of suffering after another. Jesus is then rejected by all the things, that all the power uh, brokers of the world. And so all the people that grant significance in, in, in Israel, all the people that say, hey, you're good and you're not, you're in trouble and you're safe, all of those people are going to reject Jesus. He has to suffer. He must do these things. He must be rejected by the power structures of Israel. And then he is to be killed. He must be killed. Not die. He has to be killed. This is not die of natural causes. This is like first degree. This is like, like premeditated murder of Jesus. And he says, I must do these things. And this is Jesus' the descent into grace, greatness. You and I cannot do these things. We're not meant to do these things. 
And so that's why the word must is attached to Jesus and Jesus alone. Only Jesus is able to bear this type of burden for us. But he does it gladly. For the joy set before him, Jesus says, that he endured the cross. He, he endured the descent into greatness. And this is our Savior. This is what he does for us. But then something remarkable happens. He talks about himself and this is what he must do. But then he picks up the passage and he says, this is what I'm inviting you into, right? And so there's an invitation in this passage, what Jesus must do, but then he invites us into it. And so then he's, he's yelling at Peter and he says, and calling the crowds to himself with his disciples. And he says, if anyone, and this word, if, is really strong. This is not a command. This is conditional. And this is an invitation for you and me. What are we going to do? What are we going to choose? What are you going to choose? What type of life are you going to choose? Because it's up to you. Because if you're going to do this, Jesus says, this is what it's going to look like. If you're going to come on the journey, I just want to let you know beforehand, this is what you can expect. If anyone would come after me, let him, again, another kind of just, just a soft, not a command, right? But let him do these types of things. What Jesus is doing here is he's inviting you and I into the descent. And yet he knows that we're going to go kicking and screaming. We love to posture ourselves as more important than we really are. We love, I love to posture myself as smarter than I really am. We, I love to posture myself as stronger than I am. Smarter, greater, bigger. And this posturing, me, 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 right? And the pronouns here, the directives here is that you are to follow after another pronoun. And it's not you. The person that you're following, the people that you're posturing, the thing that we're, like, we're, we're lifting up is not you. It's following after Jesus. Let him deny himself in order to follow Jesus. This is the pathway. This is the pathway that you are to descend into greatness. And so this, this inverted arc is what Jesus is doing. And he is inviting you on the exact same journey for you to deny yourself and for you to pick up your own cross in order to follow me. It's interesting in the next verse, he says that those who want to save their life will actually lose it. There's actually another arc in this passage and it's a typical ascent. But if you want to save your life, if you want to make yourself amazing, if you want to become a power structure, if you want to make yourself important, just remember that the roller coaster is about to go down. And so ultimately, you're going to feel a high. Ultimately, yes, you are going to be on top of the world. And yet there is a roller coaster that is only going down. Those who try to posture themselves to save their life will ultimately lose it. And this is a great warning of Jesus 
Not because he's being mean, because he's a teacher and he's on eye level and he's stooping down. He has to teach and he says, you have to get this right. And that's why he said these things plainly for you to get. This is what it takes to follow me. And there's only two choices. There's only two choices. It's not real plain in the English. But in the Greek, um, here's some interesting things. And so, starting in verse 31, let me just read it again. And that way we'll start to see the dips. But then I'm going to point out a few things. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. You're starting to draw the, the picture in your mind. Suffer many things. And then he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And so then, after three days, he will rise again. And he said these things plainly. And Peter took him, beside, uh, took him aside and began to rebuke him. But he turned and he kind of he, he surveyed the scenes and turning and seeing the disciples. Jesus then rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. And here's what I want you to do either in your scriptures or in your worship guide. For you to underline or circle that phrase, behind me. Behind me. Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but you are but on the things of man. And calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so if anyone would come after me, I then want you to circle after me. If anyone would want to come after me. And then draw a line. Because the phrase, behind me, and the phrase, after me, those two phrases in Greek, right, in the original language, those are the exact same phrase. There's two choices that Jesus is letting you know. It's for you are going to follow Jesus. You're going to be behind him in one way or the other. One is a moment of shame. One is a moment of humiliation. And the other is a moment of humble and following. And so there's only a couple of ways that you get back there. Either you're forced back there by Jesus, literally to be left by him, or you willingly, it's a choice, you get behind him, you look after him, and you want to follow after him. It's the exact same phrase. Get behind me, Satan is a really strong word. You see, Jesus, he had seen this before. He had heard this ploy before. Do you remember in Matthew's gospel where he actually goes into the wilderness? And Jesus is being tempted three times by Satan himself. Hey, are you hungry, Jesus? You want to make your life a little better and a little more comfortable? You're hungry? Then all you have to do is turn the stones into bread and just eat for days, man. Just do it yourself. You got the power go for it. The second is, he takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple. He looks over the, the, the courtyard. He says, alright, listen, Jesus, all you gotta do is throw yourself off the top of the temple mount because you know that there's no way you're gonna splat on the concrete below. 
All you got to do is jump off and you know that the angels will come in and sweep you and you will, your foot will not even touch the ground. You're going to be saved. And the last thing is he, he then takes him up to just the highest point on earth and he lets him look at all the kingdoms. He says, Jesus, all this can be yours. All you have to do is worship me. So Satan has been in this place where he says, provide for yourself. Let others take care of you. Or you can have the entire world. He's been tempted by this before. You can get out of victory. You can claim victory by another means. And that other means is taking care of yourself. And so the reason he is so harsh on Peter, and he calls him, get behind me, Satan, is because he knows that Peter, being satanic, being satanic, is tempting him to go a different way. There's another way to victory other than your death, suffering, and resurrection. And that's just wrong. We think that Satan lies in shadows or at Halloween or grisly costumes or scary movies. In this moment, Satan looks like a best friend and in a conversation is trying to shift the conversation away from what Jesus must do. This is the empirical evidence that you need, that Jesus was able to withstand the great tempter, even rebuking one of his best friends. There's only two ways to get behind Jesus, for you to be forced back there in humiliation, only to be left behind, or to be a willing disciple. And for you to come after Jesus, for you to follow after Jesus, for you to lose yourself in order for him to give you purpose in life. And this is what he promises, that I'm going to do it perfectly, but that then I'm also going to invite you on the same journey. The problem with today's church, the problem with us today, is that we've defined discipleship and we've defined fellowship as something pretty pasty, pale, and generic. The call of this passage is for you to lose yourself. To find yourself in him and him alone. What are you following after? What kind of journey are you on? If it has any inkling toward making much of yourself, just know you're on the wrong trajectory. John Mark is an amazing picture to us. Because John Mark, he only gets kind of two narratives in the Bible. We know that John Mark, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, right? There's this tiny little verse where, where John Mark is running naked, right? Through the forest away from Jesus, right? And so when, like, the, when it, like, things started to go down, we see John, or Mark, we see John Mark running away from Jesus. And on Paul's first missionary journey, what do we see Mark doing? The same thing, running away from Paul. Mark's a runner, and he's running in the wrong direction. And so this idea of fellowship is not perfection, but it is moving on a journey 
where you are committed, because Mark is writing these words, and you're committed to pointing yourself to Jesus and Jesus alone. And so at the end of that scene where Andy DeFreeze is overlooking this prison yard and everyone has literally paused and is listening to this beautiful, beautiful music. There's this unbelievable quote. And his, his friend Red, played by Morgan Freeman, he's reflecting on what has just happened. And so Red is in the prison yard staring up at these speakers. And you hear that kind of just an unbelievable voice says, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words. It makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anyone in a gray place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage, made these walls dissolve away, and for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. It's like a beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made these walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. So Andy willingly got beat up and thrown into the pit just for this quote. We have a savior of the world We got more than beaten and thrown into two days of solitary confinement. We have one who descended from heaven, who lived this earth, who suffered, who was rejected, was ultimately killed in order to give your life purpose. As beautiful as this scene scene is, how much more glory and beautiful is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's come to do this for us. And he's unashamed to say, I want you to come following after me because this is the arc of life. This is how it happens. John puts it like this. He says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, unless a kernel of grain falls down into the earth and under the soil and dies, it only remains a single seed. It just is a seed packet. But if he does this, if it is able to fall down, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates, who loses, who becomes the servant of all, if anyone hates their life in this world, will keep it for eternal life. At the end of this journey is salvation. At the end of this journey is eternal life. We want you to consider Jesus this morning and go on his journey, not the journey that you have for yourself. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we will do almost anything to make ourselves feel important, 
to make ourselves look smart. We'll do almost anything to stay in control. And so this idea of bearing a cross, whatever that means, this idea of losing our life, whatever that means, this idea of denying ourselves, it scares us to bits. We, like Peter, want to wave our hands and say, Lord, is there another way? And Jesus is very clear, there is no other way. There's only two choices. To reject Jesus and be forced behind and left behind. Or to willingly, soberly come after Jesus and to follow after him. There may be some in here this morning who have never taken that step of faith to even start a relationship with Jesus. To even start this, this, this journey And this morning, you've seen your attempts to be strong fail. And you have understood that your attempts to be smart have just fizzled away or become important, not last very long. And so you know that this climbing the ladder to make much of yourself, it just doesn't work. And this morning, because of Mark 8, you've understood that the true arc of life is to descend, to give up your life, to lose your life hand it over to Jesus and say, I will follow you. You are the master, the son of man, the savior, the redeemer. And I will trust you fully and completely. There may be some in here this morning that are willing to start that journey today. Just know we've got counselors in the back who would love to pray with you and talk you through what it means to start that journey this morning. And others of us have started the journey We've said, Lord, I want to make you Lord of my life and I want you to be king and I want you to be master and yet I keep deviating from following you. And instead of trying to lose my life, I try to save it. And try, instead of trying to deny myself, I try to, man, just to fill my life with everything that this world has to offer. This morning, you may come to the end of the passage and go, yes, this is an adulterous, terrible generation that continues to lie to me. And I don't want to own the lie anymore. I want to cast that off and I want to willingly follow after Jesus. And so this is a place of kind of reset where we're going to reset our minds to look at God, not the things of man. And we are going to reset. We're going to just change the trajectory. We're going to just go into a descent into where we are going to find life. This is a scary place because this step is like like a steep hill where you're not real sure where the bottom is. Well, rest, be rest assured this morning that there's been one that has gone on this journey before us and you are safe and you are secure. And so Lord Jesus, I pray in our weakness that you will take care of us and we will understand that we do not go on this journey by ourselves, but we are truly, truly following after you. Thank you, Lord, that you are the pronoun. Follow after me you say. Come after me, you say. And we ask this in your good name. Amen.